0: If you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to Ruth chapter 3. There this morning we resume our study. We have been making our way through this wonderful book of the Old Testament, this very short but very powerful narrative you find in the period of the Judges. So Ruth takes place, uh, or Ruth comes in your Bibles just after the book of Judges, right before the book of 1 Samuel. It gives us, as I've said many times, a vignette, a snapshot of life during the period of the Judges, and, and we, we, we get the, the primary refrain, refrain in Judges that men were doing what was right in their own eyes, and so we, we see that there. And and Ruth stands out, as I said, I think, maybe last week or the week before, uh, like a spike of pearl in this otherwise dim view of humanity. And, and we're reminded what God had, would later say to Elijah when Elijah laments that everybody has given themselves over to Baal, and God says, no, I've reserved 7,000, then when we think that everybody in the period of the judges has given over to themselves and to wickedness and and immorality, we we remember, we find that as in every age, there are people that God has reserved for Himself that are the bearers of truth. Well, this morning… Uh, unique, it's not unique to this section or this book, but what I find we come back to a theme is the theme of grace that we find here in Ruth. This book is littered with that concept grace, that very rich theme of the Bible. When I was in seminary, I'm sure Richard would probably have similar experiences. Some professors, they, they stand out in your mind, and, and one of my professors uh, one time talking he was a preaching professor, and he talked about as, as preachers, as men studying to be preachers, the opportunity that we would have to communicate grace again and again and again, this rich, beautiful doctrine of the Word and of God. He, he wept. I remember the day that he wept as he began to speak of God's grace in his own life. For This particular professor is a name that would be known to you. Most people in here would know his name if I told you. But he spent about 18 years in Belfast, Ireland, during the heart of the IRA and all the things that were going on. And he had opportunities to see death, heartache, and he had great opportunities to see the grace of the Lord rescue people. That's really what we're looking at this morning. We're looking at what happens when grace rescues a person, and we live in that grace. And so without further delay, I want to turn our attention now to the book of Ruth. We continue to make our way through... Ruth chapter 3, this morning we are pick up in verse 6 where we left off last week, and we will read through verse 13. So, beloved of God, hear now God's infallible, inerrant word. Ruth chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So when's the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Please pray with me. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that, God, whatever obstacles tried to prevent us this morning from coming in, you have set the table before us and have called us here. So lay all those things aside now as we hone in on the rich Beauty of grace, and use it to transform us. I pray in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. When we think of grace, it is a very moving idea. Uh, It's moving because when we hear it and see it, it does have a profound effect on us. Right there, there are there are places in history where we see grace at work and we see the moving, profound effect it had. John Newton, who, was, who ran a slaving ship, who transported human beings to be bought and sold. Wretched man that he was, and yet when he's confronted with grace, he leaves it all behind to follow Christ. When we think of William Wilberforce, Right? Parliamentarian in England, early 19th century, he labored under the precepts of Christianity to see slavery abolished in England. Grace captured his heart and moved him to be then a conduit of grace for other people. When we get into the fiction realm, Victor Hugo, Les Mis, how, I mean, when we see the priest in Les Mis, who tells Jean Valjean, yes, you've stolen from me. Now here, take these two and go and use it for good. And then Jean Valjean, captured by grace, goes and extends grace to other people. In the fiction realm again, Babette's Feast. Maybe some of you are familiar with that. Some of you might not be. It is a classic. Well, I'm going to take a few minutes just to tell you the story. (laughs) It's worth it. Babette, this... French Catholic, goes to a Danish village, Protestant village, and there she goes, and very unassuming goes about her, her life as a server, serving quietly. And then one day, and I'm skipping a lot here just for the sake of time, you, you should go back and check out the story. Uh, one day she, she wins the lottery, 10,000 francs, which is a, a, a great sum of money, Babette, having been trained in culinary and food, decides at the 100th birthday of the founding pastor of the church in the town, she wants to host a feast for all the town. And then the story goes on as crates were coming in from France and all over the world as as she's buying all these ingredients, making a succulent feast for the town. And she hosts this feast, And everybody feasts and has a great time. And assuming that after the feast is over, Babette's going to take her winnings and go, only to find out she spent every franc she had to serve the people. She had given a lavish gift that in in, in the context of the time couldn't possibly be repaid. What I love about that story is it reminds us how lavish grace actually is. Grace is not giving to get. Grace is not giving to get something in return. Grace is giving beyond what a person has the capacity to repay. That is the very meaning of grace. When we think about God's loving kindness to us, His grace to us, when you start looking at who you were versus who you are, where God has brought you from to where you are now, you ask yourself, I ask myself, could I ever repay that debt or gift? I couldn't because it's too big, it's too large. But that's the whole beauty of grace grace is meant not to lead us to fairness per se but to something lavish something deeper and richer than mere fairness to genuine love grace is not easily defined i've used the word already uh, but it, there's not an easy way to define grace let's say one of the things we could say grace really is kind of the essence of who god is God, by His very nature, is gracious. God can't be anything but gracious because that is a part of His own uh, character, His own nature, so that even in discipline, grace is present because what is discipline designed to do for the believer? To transform us. It's not purely punitive. It's not simply vengeful or spite to make us feel pain, so it's not karma God's discipline is not karma. Do we reap what we sow from time to time? Yeah. But grace is bigger than that. Grace is designed to not only sometimes feel the weight of our actions, but also to be transformed and grow through them. That's what grace is meant. So that grace is a gift of love from the Lord. It is a gift of life from the Lord. Grace produces genuine liberty in the Lord, right? So much of what we do is enslaving, so much of the the directions that we'll go in our flesh and our humanity enslave, but grace frees us from that. Grace is beautiful and rich, but it can be tough. The grace to say, I love you enough to do what's best for you. God lavishes us with grace; lavishes us with grace, and He calls us to do the same. And so, when we start thinking about our gracious God, it is right to, to, to pause and say thank you. But then, how do we how do we take that and live it out? That's always got to be the question for us as Christians. How does this not remain in the arena of theory, philosophy, and just good theology? How does it become good praxis? how does it become good practice for us? And we see this in Ruth. We see this in Boaz. We see this in Ruth. When we look at the book of Ruth, it's filled with grace. Ruth and Boaz extend grace to each other. Ruth extends grace to Naomi. Naomi, out of grace, wants to love and help Ruth. So when we look at the book, one of the things it does is it teaches us the value of being gracious people, of having a posture of grace. Now, Here's what I'm not saying. Being a gracious person does not mean that we become proverbial doormats for people to walk over and to take advantage of. So often, people in the name of grace actually damage relationships because they set up a framework that is not healthy. Being gracious is not saying, so just take advantage of me all the time. Are gracious people taken advantage of from time to time? Yes. And we have to risk it, don't we? We have to risk it to remain gracious. But grace also is seeking to love in a way that honors God. And as people who want to reflect God to the world, that means that our demeanor, our posture, our our general ethos is grace. And can I say this? Because this needs to be said. I need to hear this myself. We don't extend grace to people who deserve it if it's deserved, beloved, it becomes a wage. And if we're constantly waiting for someone to deserve grace, they're never going to get there. You're never going to get there to that place of deserving, and I'm not either. No, no, no. Grace grace is, is, is a gamble in the sense that we know that when we extend it, it cannot be paid back. That's what makes grace beautiful. That's what makes God's grace to us so beautiful. Try though we might, never pay that back. But we can live showing his grace to others. Jean Valjean and Les Miz could never pay back the debt of that priest, so what did he do? He lived his life choosing to be a gracious man because he understood what it was like to not be deserving and to be shown grace. That's the power of grace. Let others know that we are Christians because of the grace that shines through us, not for any sort of Pharisaical commitments. Hey, be obedient. Yes, the law is beautiful. But may we be known by our grace and by our love for Jesus. And so, with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea in our text this morning I want for us to see, and it's this that the people of God must embody the grace of God, that the people of God must embody the grace of God. When we looked at First and Second Timothy, I said there was an overarching theme that ran through there. And actually, let's go back. When we looked at Daniel, there was an overarching theme that ran through Daniel, then that ran through First Timothy, that then ran through 2 Timothy, that is now running through Ruth. The simple concept of faithfulness. What does it mean to be faithful? Well, it means to be committed. We've talked about that. It means to be genuine and loyal. We've talked about all those things. But let me add one more now stone to the building of faithfulness. Faithfulness is all those things I just mentioned, but it's also being gracious. So part of being faithful is being a gracious person, choosing grace. When we think about faithfulness as grace, faithfulness is grace. Why? Well, primarily because it's sacrificial, right? To be a gracious person is to be sacrificial. We have to sacrifice. Sometimes we have to sacrifice what we think we deserve, Sometimes we have to sacrifice even our own pride or our own sense of worth in a moment to be a gracious person. What is grace and faithfulness? They both do the same thing. What do they what do? They, do? They, they force us to give out of love, right? They force us to, to do that. If we're going to be gracious, we're going to have to give out of love. Because if I'm, if I'm being gracious just to store up merits for myself, that ain't grace right? That ain't grace. That's called, I'm building a credit system against you, and at the right time, I'm going to start telling you everything you owe me because I've done this and I've done that. You've dealt with those people before. I have. And their grace in a moment turns out to be a debt. May it be far from us to live that way. Boaz and Ruth didn't live that way. When we come to our text this morning, So she went down to the threshing floor in verse 6 and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. So verse 6 is laying down the foundation of obedience that we see again and again in Ruth. Ruth is being obedient, following Naomi's advice and wisdom right down to the letter of what she did, of what Naomi instructed. Naomi instructed Ruth followed those instructions. Now, why? Well, in, 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 a, in a system of honor and shame, in a system of, of great respect and admiration for the elderly, what Ruth understood was following instructions shows love and honor, but it does something else. When Ruth follows the instructions of Naomi, what she's making, this assumption that she's making is, is that Naomi knows what is best. Now, we've, often, we've already said, We might question what Naomi told her to do, but at the end of the day, it works out. And so, Naomi's wisdom proves true by the end of the book of Ruth. But what what Ruth does is she shows her need of wisdom. She doesn't have all the answers. So, by following Naomi's advice, she's telling us that this is a good word from Naomi, and I'm going to follow it. And that's the beauty of submission, so in one sense, Ruth is displaying a sense of submission. She's submitting to Naomi. She's coming under the mission of, remember, that's how I define submission way back in First and 2 Timothy, coming under the mission of, Ruth is coming under the mission of Naomi in this particular instance. And this shows love for Naomi, but ultimately it shows love for the Lord. And here's the thing, that type of submission is just not natural to us as human beings. That's something that has to be worked into us over time and over growth and over maturity. The more we mature, the more submissive we should become. Because the more we mature, the more we recognize, I don't have the answers. In fact, I don't have the strength. And sometimes when I do know the answer, I still don't always have the will or the strength to execute it. So we need to come under the mission of the Lord. We need to come under the mission of of, of godly leaders and people who are trying to walk us through the hardships of life. But it's not natural. We won't just one day decide, I'm going to be seditious. It has to come by the power of the transforming truth of the Holy Spirit. So we see Ruth. Now what I love of what 6 and 7 does is it displays Ruth following Naomi's instruction, and then it displays Boaz. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and, and his heart was merry He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. When we look at Boaz, what I love here, you've heard me talk about creational ordinances before. that When God created humanity, created the earth, there were things he created. He created humans to rest, or let's put it in this order, to, to labor, to rest, and to marry. Those are three things that are true of humans regardless of religion. Those are just true of human beings. What I love is you see, this, you see this pattern. You see this kind of nod back to creation. What does Boaz do? He labors, right? He's been laboring at the threshing floor. He enjoys the fruit of said labor as God had told Adam to do. And then he goes down to rest with the proposal of marriage coming by the woman Ruth to follow. And so you, you see this scriptural pattern that is rich in the Old Testament that gives us a sense of what are we designed to do? What does it look like to live for the glory of God, to labor well, to rest well, and to relate well? It's beautifully simple, isn't it? And then we see Boaz living in this pattern. When we talk about the heaps of grain, we talk about Boaz eating and drinking his wine and eating his grain and being merry, enjoying the fruits of his labor. What I love is What do we we take away from that? Well, Ruth is putting God front and center about his provision. The harvest is God's provision. The harvest for Boaz is God's provision. So the question is, is God has been faithful to Boaz. How will Boaz respond to that? What will Boaz do in response? He can hoard it. He can shuffle people away. Or he can take his plenty and be gracious with his plenty, which is exactly what he's doing. And so you have this picture of grace, God graciously giving fruit. How is this fruit enjoyed? It's enjoyed as the fruit of labor. So Boaz has labored well. He's enjoying God's blessings of harvest. And when we have this plenty, as Boaz does, the question we're always going to be asked is, will we be faithful with it? You know, because the real trial of character is often not in hardship. I've said this just a few weeks ago. It's what will we do when we have a surplus? How will we handle the plenty? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I'm broken and and needy, I don't mind crying out. The real challenge becomes when I have seemingly everything that I need and then some. How will I handle it? How will my heart handle it? Well when we look at grace and faithfulness, they enable us to be humble. Because every if you are in this room this morning, or if you're listening to this later on a recording, and God is you have you've confessed Jesus as Lord of your life, you've you've been saved by Christ, you've been captured by grace, and you know what it means to stand before the Lord of glory completely undeserving of the gift that has been given you. What do we do with that? Well, we can stick it in our coat pocket and shine it every so often and love it and keep it, or we can figure out ways to let it compel us to be gracious people. Boaz has done that. Boaz has done that. Now, please, I feel like it's, it's, it's important to give this caveat. Don't leave here and say, well, the pastor says I should be so gracious that I shouldn't think about anything else. That's actually not what I'm saying. Everybody has a limit, right? Every, every person has a, a point to which they have to say, time out, let me take inventory and see how the Lord might want me to back off here. Because sometimes under the banner of grace, it'll look like grace, and it's really not grace at all. It's actually creating a bigger problem, which is why we need books like When Helping Hurts, there comes a point to where we have to stop and actually let a person feel the ramifications of decisions from time to time so that grace can actually capture them. But our posture should be, what does grace look like in this context? We should always be asking that question. Boaz, in and, and Boaz's context, you know what it looked like? Giving this lady some groceries. That's exactly what it looked like. So often, that, that is what grace looks like. Sometimes it's just, hey, uh, Ruth and Naomi, they, they need some wheat. They need some barley. We have a lot of wheat and barley. Let's just give them some of our wheat and barley. Um, and then we go back to the drawing board as the situation progresses. But when we come to this, all right, so we've, we've got verse or verse 7 here. Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, and when you see his heart was merry, and in Hebrew, actually, it was the uh, idea of being satisfied or, or good, but he'd been enjoying the fruit of the vine. His heart was merry. He was happy. He was going to lay down a glad man because he'd had a little party celebrating his harvest and because he was laying at the heaps of his grain. He was looking at what the land produced for him and his family. So he goes through, he's had a great day, he's had a great day of harvest, he's had a fun night of celebration, his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain, and then she came softly. Some translations might say secretly, that misses the the idea of the word. It really is softly. In other words, she didn't come as if trying to be covert so much as softly not to wake anybody or do anything undue. Uh, So not so much trying to hide, just trying to be quiet and respectful. Think of that. So she came softly, and she uncovered his feet and lay down. So when we, we see Ruth, she does exactly what Naomi does for her, and she does something where she puts herself in a position of submission, right? And it doesn't necessarily, I've said this last week, have to be a perpendicular, i.e. He, Boaz lays here and she lays here. It's just somewhere in a spot where she's making no assumptions about what Boaz's intent or motive would be. We know what she's asking, but she still puts her place, or she still places herself in the place of humility. The place of submission. Do you know what I love about the scene? Because if we can can back out of that just for a second and look what, what Ruth does. Some of you in here, some of us in here, may struggle with anxiety. We may struggle with worrying. And it might be hard to lay down, lie down, if we think I've got this great weight over me and I just want to pace. And, oh, what if Boaz says, no, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if. The what if game can kill you. What if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if. Ruth doesn't do that. She lays down at his feet. What it tells you is she's trusting that Naomi's given her good advice. She's trusting that Naomi, or that Boaz, rather, is a righteous man. is going to do the right thing. She's also trusting in the God that she's already confessed faith in. That God is going to care for her and Naomi, beloved. Let that wash over us, real quick. It's not the point of the story, but it's a great application to think that where is her confidence? It's in the Lord. God is going to take care of this to the point that I can lie down. I can rest. And I love what she says to her, what she says as this this totally progresses from here. So she uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, in the middle of the night, as it were, the man was startled, as, as we might imagine. He went to bed alone, and now there's another person there that would startle me for sure. Um, I mean, right? It's easy to read over that detail, but imagine you you go to bed alone and then just like. Uh, I mean, it's a little disconcerting. So he he lays down, he's alone, he wakes up, he's not alone, so he turns over, and look at this. Behold, a woman lay at his feet. I love the way that Ruth does this. A woman lay at his feet. At this point, he doesn't even know who it is. I mean, there's just no assumptions about who it is. And so naturally, who are you? She answers, I'm Ruth, your servant. Look, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. You know what I love about this ancient Near Eastern culture? Talk about cutting to the chase. There is no, hey, Boaz, you've got great land and not mighty heaps of grain. That robe is simply delightful. It's like, yo, I need a husband. <laughs> I mean, that, that, is what, that is what we're hearing right here. Yeah, like, yo, like... Can we get this done today type thing? No beating around the bush because she understands her position. I am your servant. I'm lying at your feet, and you have something that could be a great provisional or a great provision for us, and I need you to do this. Now, again, great trust in Naomi, great trust in the Lord, and there's a benefit here. She's asking Boaz to do something for her to fulfill a need that she has that can't be filled by herself or Naomi. And I love this picture because it is, it is appealing to the gracious nature of another person. Now I want you to think what has Boaz, what had Boaz done up to this point to show himself to be one who could be trusted to, to extend grace? Tons of things. But imagine being the type of person who is gracious in nature, who someone comes to appeal to you simply because they've seen you be gracious time and time again. They understand it's an aspect of who you are. Now Ruth has another, another ace up her sleeve, She understands Boaz by virtue of Naomi. She understands Boaz's relation to the family. But she is appealing to grace. She has no claim on Boaz. She has no claim on him to do anything other than what he's already done. So every appeal now moving forward in this paragraph is simply an appeal to grace. And she asks him to spread your wings, or to literally spread your garment, but spread your wings over me How interesting that she asked that, that in 2.12, Boaz had said to her, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings, same word, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And if you really want to go down the rabbit hole... Ruth and Boaz get married. They have Obed, who has Jesse, who has David, who we know as king. David is a writer of the Psalms. You will find that one of the most prolific phrases in David's Psalms, about five or six of them, is coming under the wings of Yahweh for refuge. So there's two pictures going on here. Ruth is asking Boaz to marry her, marry me, take me into your care. And as a small extension of a larger truth, and by virtue, we will be in the wings of Yahweh. We will be in the wings of the Lord. This righteous woman, (laughs) this righteous man, seeking to live in unity under the righteous God. Beloved, you, you can't ask for a neater bow than that. When it comes to what'll preach, that'll preach. Gracious man meets noble woman, both seek to do the right thing. They come under a righteous God who declares we should be right and live under his wings in refuge. So, by asking him to extend his blanket or his garment over her, a wing, she's asking for protective care. She's asking for grace through marriage. She's asking for redemption. For in her case, redeeming of a line, buying back something that has been broken or lost, and giving it value and worth again. Beloved, how many of our relationships should be redemptive? We're not going to function like a lever at marriage here. That's not my point. But relationships in general should be pressing each other toward grace and toward the wings of the Lord. Marriage should be that. Friendship should be that. Most relationships should be that. So this is the question we ask, is how do we become the arms and legs of grace to other people? It's going to be different in different scenarios, and it's going to look differently. But are we praying those prayers? Are we asking God, how can I be a conduit of grace to other people? So Boaz now has two things to celebrate. He's got a good harvest and he's found this Ruth. I am Ruth. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. That Goel, that is such a rich word. A kinsman redeemer. In other words, you're one who specifically can do what, exactly what we need. Now remember, just remember, and by chance, Ruth gleaned in the field of of Boaz, or by God's design? Let's go with the second answer. I think that's better. Ruth gleaned in the field of Boaz. And so Boaz continues. He said, "'Who are you?' She answered, "'I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer.' And he said, "'May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter.'" Now, again, you're getting term of affection and a a clue to the difference in age. "'May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter.'" You have made this last kindness, that beautiful word, that word there in Hebrew, chesed. I'll come back to that in just a minute. You've made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Chesed, that Hebrew word that covenant word, that word that speaks of love, but not just love, but a steadfast love. It can, be, it can be used for mercy. It can be used for kindness. In some senses, it can be used for generosity. Or if you want to talk about the rich covenant love of God, you would use the word chesed. And it's interesting that Boaz takes this very God-centered word and he applies it to Ruth now. You are showing the type of love that Yahweh shows. This is a Moabite. She was a Gentile, a natural enemy of God captured by the love for Yahweh and now is reflecting his, Yahweh's love back to Yahweh's people. This is what happens when we become captured by God and by grace and we begin to reflect it out. Boaz notes it. You have shown a greater kindness, chesed, steadfast love here. I want us to remember something that this marriage to Boaz is sacrificial on both accounts. Ruth is, is is kind of sacrificing. Let's call it let's call it the young woman's dream of meeting a guy that she's very compatible with, maybe attraction, even though ancients didn't think in those terms. But she is sacrificing what might have been a normal life, and to have a child that is really not her child. It's going to be Naomi's and Elimelech's child because it's got to fulfill the line. Of Elimelech through his two sons. And Boaz is doing the same thing. Now, remember, the first child technically won't be his child. It'll be another man's child for the way the laws work. Both of them are setting aside their own desires. Now, imagine this in the 21st century saying, there is something more important than my desire here, something rich, something beautiful, something gracious. Imagine having that type of view of grace that it compelled us to sacrifice our desires for something larger. When Rachel and I were at Trinity, we had a bulletin. And on the front of that bulletin, Trinity Presbyterian Church, I'm sorry, Trinity Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. We were there for four years while I was going through seminary. I loved what the front of our bulletin said. If I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. Larger than life greater than self, lasting forever, the kingdom of God. Every Sunday morning we were greeted with that phrase on our morning bulletin, and just that reminder there is something so much larger than who we are. It's the kingdom of God. They see it. Ruth sees it. And so that you have these two human beings who are showing grace to one another. And so this gets to the heart of what it means to deny self, deny pleasure, and be gracious people. Boaz, 11, 12, and 13 form are, are really just a tight little response. Ruth has not gone after younger men, whether poor or rich. Why is she gone after Boaz? Who is this for? Well, it's kind of for Ruth, but you know who it's really for? It's for Naomi. It's a sacrifice for someone she loves. Now, beloved, I want you to think about that. She's making a lifelong promise and commitment to another human being because of her love for another human being. Talk about setting whatever desires I may come to the table with aside for just a moment to love other people well. That's it. Can't ask for better than that. So Boaz, who is a righteous man himself, 11, 12, and 13, and now my daughter, don't fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Esheth there it is. We'll come back to that in just a minute. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Here's what I love about Boaz. Yet, there is a redeemer nearer than I. Oh, he's giving her the righteous right response. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So, right here, we get there's a righteous response. Grace is the fruit of righteousness, right? Of real righteousness, of living in right relationship with God. God, so we have Boaz seeking to honor Ruth. Don't fear. I'm going to do everything you ask. I'm going to take care of the situation, or I'm going to make sure that you have what you need. In other words, I'm not going to let you and Naomi twist in the wind. Of course, we know that the other Redeemer doesn't really want to marry Ruth, And maybe Boaz already knew this, maybe he didn't. But either way, he's going to do this the right way. There's integrity here. There's not, I'm going to take something that's not mine, or I'm going to work and be manipulative. I'm going to work this out in a way that honors God, that honors you, and that honors the Lord. Because remember now, as much as Boaz is is a worthy man, Ruth is an eshechiel. That Proverbs 31 statement that we read about so many weeks ago now, how is this wife of noble character shown in Ruth. It's shown in sacrificial love, grace, hard work, and humility. Ruth is laboring well to honor God and to honor Naomi. He wraps this thing up with, remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you good, let him. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. In other words, Lie down. I'll take care of you. Let's be discreet. And so Boaz is trying to help guard the reputation of Ruth. And that's part of what grace does. How do we help? love, how do we love each other well? Boaz yields here to what is right, and he promises to fill his obligation as a redeemer. When you come to texts like this, and this part of the story is so rich And I'm going to expand on those other three verses later on because we're going to see the scene. But suffice it now to say this, that when you look at texts like this, it reminds us that grace and righteousness aren't mutually exclusive. They work together to point others to Christ. So when we think about grace here and everywhere, the power of grace is not that it liberates us to live as we please with no thought of consequence. That is not grace. You know what that's called? The fancy word is antinomianism. The, the the street level word for antinomianism is lawlessness, living in rebellion. Some people confuse grace and rebellion or grace and lawlessness. It's not what grace is. Grace liberates us to be righteous because grace frees us to love God freely and to love His people. And righteousness can't be merely confined to law keeping. Righteousness is living in right relationship with God through Jesus. And so the grace that we experience in Christ is meant to affect how we live and how we treat others. The power of grace is not simply that it's made us free, beloved. It's that it's made us new. New. We're not who we were. We've been bought and paid for. The old has passed away, Paul says to the Corinthians, and the new has come. And so the power of grace is also rich in that it's empowered us to show Christ to others. Ruth and Boaz are such a rich story of grace and righteousness. May it affect who we are, how we live, and how we show grace. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word and its, its rich beauty this morning. God, so often we can run the gamut of going so far to the one side that what, what appeared to be grace is no longer grace, or going to the other side and refraining from showing grace because people haven't deserved it. Father, forgive us for either of those. Neither are grace. One is lawlessness and one is legalism. And I pray that you would weave in our hearts a humility over what you've done for us and how we love others well. Thank you for the story of Boaz and Ruth. It grips the heart as it reminds us that we are gripped by grace and that it pursues us all the days of our lives. God, may we reflect it to the world. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.